There are various methods for evaluating clinical technology. One method is gold standard comparisons, where you're evaluating your new technology or your, your proposed technology against what's considered a gold standard. It's already accepted as a standard. But what we're going to talk about now are clinical trials and specifically randomized clinical trials. We're going to start off the discussion by talking about various types of investigations. We're going to talk through population comparisons or ecological studies, retrospective studies or case-controlled studies, prospective studies or cohort studies, randomized clinical trials or randomized controlled trials. Let's start with population comparisons. So if you were to start with a reference population, so a large population of people that you are planning to study, and through that reference population, you select some participants, and these participants have to be willing and eligible to be part of this study. And from there, you split that population into two groups. So you have an active intervention group, and you have a comparison group. An advantage of population comparisons is that oftentimes it's conducted using routinely collected data. So large data sets that are already available and being able to look at the data and separate out based on that one particular variable and making conclusions from that. If you're looking at a large population, you have that advantage of not requiring information on specific individuals. So you're not as concerned about the impact on each individual in the study, but rather how it impacted overall that population collectively. These types of studies are relatively inexpensive to perform, and they're rapid to conduct. And often these serve as a starting point for investigating relationships and generating a hypothesis. So it may not be the end-all, be-all study to draw your ultimate conclusions, but it might give you that opportunity to test the water and see if there's any merit in the investigation that you're trying to conduct. And if the results come back positive, then you can continue on some more robust testing methods. Case-controlled studies are useful for studying rare conditions or diseases. Typically, in case-controlled studies, you have fewer individuals than other study designs. So essentially what you do is you look at a population where there is existing a certain disease or condition, and it might be a very minimal impact. It might just be a handful of people in a really large population. But what you do from there is you look at the individuals with the disease, and the individuals without the disease, and you look back and you compare prior exposures to various variables. These types of studies can be done in a relatively short amount of time because the individuals already have the disease, and now you're going back to figure out what sort of influences or exposures or variables could have caused that disease. Now the challenge is, case-controlled studies such as these are prone to errors and biases. Because there are potentially so many variables you're looking back on, there's a possibility that you're going to miss the correlation with those variables in all of that data. Cohort studies are really good at establishing cause and effect. 
You follow patients over a long period of time, but as a result, they're typically very expensive and very time-consuming. Whereas with case-controlled studies, you're looking at a population where a disease already exists. In these cohort studies, you're looking at a population without the condition or without the disease, and you're identifying those within that population that have a certain risk factor and those that don't have the risk factor, and you study them over a period of time to see do they in fact develop that condition or disease. An example would be if you're studying a particular type of cancer and you hypothesize that obesity has a direct link to this type of cancer, you would look at a population of individuals who do not currently have that cancer, and then you would split that population between those that would be considered obese and those that would be considered not. So you're separating out have the risk factor and don't have the risk factor. And then you would watch those individuals over time and see if they develop that disease. So there you're able to establish a cause and effect. And because you're establishing that variable on the front end and you're watching the participants through the study, it's much easier to draw conclusions because you're following a single risk factor or a single variable rather than a case-controlled study where you're looking back and trying to figure out which variable may have had an impact. Both case-control studies and cohort studies are considered to be observational studies. And what that means is they observe the alignment of individuals rather than impose the characteristics or interventions. You're separating the populations based on a certain variable, but you're not introducing a variable into that study. Now let's talk about randomized controlled trials. So as I mentioned, the cohort study is looking at a population and separating that population based on whether they have the risk factor or don't have the risk factor. It is a prospective study, meaning that you are studying the population and you are observing for the development of that condition or disease. You're not looking back, which would be retrospective, after the disease has already been developed. So if we take that same idea, but rather than splitting the group into has the risk factor and doesn't have the risk factor, what if we create two groups that are essentially the same? And to do that, you randomly pick from a population and place them into two groups. That is what a randomized clinical trial is. So randomizing helps to ensure that the study characteristic and not some underlying predisposition produces the study results. One of the randomized groups would be considered the study group, and the other one would be considered the control group. So the control group would not have any sort of variable or intervention, whereas the study group would have an intervention applied to them. For example, if you're talking about a medication, you may give the control group a placebo, and you may give the study group the actual medication, and therefore you'd be able to determine what the actual impact was of that particular medication. Earlier I mentioned population studies, and in some sense a population study could be a precursor to setting up a randomized clinical trial. 
for the population study, you typically are using big data and you don't have a lot of investment and qualification and organization around the study, but you're able to draw some basic conclusions from it. And once that's done, if there's merit to your hypotheses or to what you're trying to work toward, then you could organize a randomized clinical trial to really pinpoint that particular variable or influence as to whether it is actually impacting the control group or the study group. If you truly want to do a thorough job evaluating a clinical device or a new technology, you want to achieve what's referred to as a multi-centered, prospective, randomized clinical trial, and you want that to be peer-reviewed. I'll get into what all that means, but let's step back for a second and talk about the different clinical research documentation that you may run across when evaluating a technology. One of the most basic materials that is readily accessible is the sales material offered by the developer of that technology. Obviously, this can give you some basic information as to what the function and purpose of the technology is and give you some idea of why you might want that technology. But you have to be careful about what conclusions you draw from reading that material because it is, after all, sales material, so they want you to buy their product. So any claims that are made in sales material should be referenced, or you should find out whether those claims have any merit. Something that's got a little bit more teeth, but not much, would be a vendor-sponsored study. So the company that's developing or selling that technology sponsors a study, and they provide some detail and some methodology behind how they arrived at the conclusions of what their technology is capable of. So if this study is truly just sponsored by the developer of the technology and it's not in some sort of formal published fashion, you may want to look a little further to find some additional support. You may look for and you may find a submitted abstract, some sort of publication, that abstract may even have some sort of acceptance around it, so it may be submitted through a professional organization, and therefore it has the backing of a larger group other than the developer of the technology. But what would be more preferred is an actual randomized clinical trial, and that trial should be prospective and should have peer review and should be conducted in multiple centers. A multi-center clinical trial attempts to eliminate some of the bias and variation of single sites. So if you conduct a trial, even if it's randomized, at one particular facility or one location, you're only testing it for the variables that are present in that particular location. So if you study it in one hospital, you can draw conclusions for that one hospital. Now, if you conduct that trial simultaneously in a number of sites in a multi-centered study, you can choose other hospitals and compare the results and identify whether there might be any variation in between the various hospitals or various locations that you conduct the study. You may even consider not choosing multiple sites that have the same characteristics, such as urban versus rural or small hospital versus large hospital. You may want to include 
a mix of all those variations in your multi-center study, and therefore you can identify whether the results of your study are truly just based on the technology or if there are some external influences that need to be considered depending on the location or the site that this technology is utilized. Ideally, you want these studies to be prospective. So the study is designed and then the data is collected, as opposed to retrospective, where you're analyzing previously collected data. And as I mentioned before, sometimes it's hard to look at data after a condition or a result is obtained and drawing conclusions as to what the cause and effect of that data was. So the preference would be a prospective study rather than retrospective. It is not always possible to do a prospective study. Sometimes retrospective is the only option, but if you run across a retrospective study, it's always prudent to ask the question, could a prospective study have been done? Would that potentially have given different results? Or retrospective is the best we can do, and we'll just have to make the best out of the conclusions that we draw from it. And I've mentioned numerous times you need this to be a randomized trial. And what I mean by randomized in the case of clinical technology is you randomly select the patients. And after you randomly select the patients or that population, you split that into a control group and a test group. So the control group will not utilize your new technology that you're testing, and the test group or the study group will utilize that new, new technology. And therefore, you can draw the conclusions as to the actual impact of the technology since the two groups are essentially the same. Another aspect to consider is whether a study or clinical research has been blinded. And blinding means that the individuals involved don't know who is the study group and who is the control group. Blinding could mean the patients don't know which group they're in, but the clinicians that are involved do. Or it could mean that the clinicians don't know which group the patients are in, but the patients might know what they're in. Ideally, what you want is what's referred to as double-blinded. You don't want the patients to know which group they're in, and you don't want the clinicians to know which group the patients are in. That way, the patients won't do anything to influence the results knowing that they either are or are not being exposed to a certain variable such as a technology. And the clinicians won't be inclined to bias their conclusions if they know whether the patients are being influenced by a technology or even a medication. Now being double-blinded is not always possible. Similar to what I mentioned about having a prospective approach to a clinical study, it's not always practical and possible. The same with being double-blinded. It's not always possible. Sometimes there is no way that you can introduce an influence on a patient without them knowing that it's happening to them. Or sometimes the clinician has to know whether the patient is being influenced by the technology or the medication in order for them to provide a, a safe, caring environment for that patient. So being double-blind is not always possible, but when it is possible, it is ideal. We just stepped through a number of clinical trials, clinical studies, investigation methodologies, but there's some variations that fall within all of these. Three of those variations are parallel two-arm trials, sequential two-arm trials, 
or crossover randomized trials. A parallel two-arm trial is conducted by taking group A, which are randomized patients with the new device, and group B, which are randomized patients without the new device, so that would be the control group, and observing them over time in parallel, meaning at the same time. That is a parallel two-arm trial. What you're able to do with this is you're able to identify that there's no variation over the time frame in which this study was conducted. If group A is studied during the summer and group B is studied during the winter, you may have introduced some other variables or influences on your study. Now let's look at a sequential two-arm trial. Now let's say you have a group of patients and you're gonna study them over a period of time, say three months, without a new device. And then when the three months is over, you introduce that new device or that new technology. And then you study that population again for another three months. So you're able to compare before the device was introduced and after the device was introduced and draw some conclusions as to what that impact is. That would be considered a sequential trial. The more ideal situation is to use a crossover randomized trial. Here's how that works. You start with group A, which is randomized patients with the device, and group B, randomized patients without the device. You study them over time in parallel. Then, after a period of time, you switch them. Group B now has the device, and group A does not have the device. So you study them in parallel, one with and one without, and then you cross over and switch which group is actually using the device and which one is not. And you can see if the results follow the technology. That is considered a crossover randomized trial. So all these types of investigations and all these types of trials have so many different flavors and variations. Not all clinical research will fall into every single one of these buckets. The point is just to understand the variation in the methodologies and understand what to look for and what the pros and cons of the various clinical research setups are. That way, if you're evaluating a technology, it'll be easier to validate whether there's some potential biases or influences, or if there's some weaknesses in the data and methodology behind the conclusions that were drawn. Ultimately, what you see in that sales material you want to validate has been verified through true clinical research and true science. And ideally, you want that to be in a multi-centered, prospective, randomized clinical trial that's been peer-reviewed by individuals outside of the sphere of that trial.